Amen. You can have a seat. What a great morning, huh? Well, one person thinks so. Have you guys had a great morning? Okay. All right. I think I, I've, I've, I've encountered God. I've already been meeting with him, and, uh, and it's been amazing so far. And we are about to get to the word, which is going to be incredible as well. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab that. Listen, I, uh, I love this church. I love the people here. Um, doesn't it, I, here's, here's what I was, I was just thinking this while I was sitting over there. Doesn't it feel like family when you're worshiping here? Like, I love that. Like, praise God for that, right? Uh, it's a wonderful thing when the people of God get together in a room, uh, in, in, in any room, especially a, a theater like this, and, and, and they're like, you know, hey, I don't have it all together. I don't know exactly what I need. I just know that I need the Lord. And so we're all coming together saying that, expressing that, and, and praising God. And, and I think that's part of what church is. It's just an incredible thing. And I love seeing the spirit move in this room with all of you. So we're in the third week of our scripture sermon, uh, our, our summer scripture series. And, and our summer, uh, this is our summer long journey through the, Col- through the book of Colossians. And then we're going to hit Philemon toward the very end. And we've, uh, we've, we've got in front of us one of the absolute best passages in the whole New Testament. All right, so we're in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 15. Now, here, I'm going to preface this. I want you to know this. This is, in, in my opinion, and, and, and in a lot of theologians' opinions as well, this is the greatest Christological statement the New Testament has to offer. Uh, these verses that we're going to cover today, uh, these are the greatest statement that talk about who Christ is. The, the, the importance, the preeminence of Jesus Christ is what we're talking about today. Um, and, and we're going to unpack that here in, in these next moments. I, I honestly could preach about this particular topic, about these verses, for probably like three hours. But I'm going to try to be as succinct as possible because I know you guys have places to go and lunch to eat. And a film is going to start showing whether we're out or not in just, you know, a little while. So um, we're, we're not... So here, here's the thing. There's so much good stuff in these verses. There's so much incredible, amazing content that we're just not going to have the time to, to, to get to today. We're not going to have the time to, to really give it, uh, honestly, as much as I would love to give it. But So here's what I'm going to challenge you with. I'd encourage you to read this, this text, these verses that we're going to cover today. Go home, continue to read them, read them this week, meditate on these, on these verses, on this passage, and... and and I promise you, there's going to be so much more for you to grasp, for you to learn, uh, for you to glean from, from this text. Even though we're going to walk through it verse by verse and word by word today, there's so much more there that you're going to have a chance to read if you just go at this on your own as well. So as you're getting your Bible or your scripture journal open, uh, let me tell you a story to get us started. Do you like, is anybody in here like darts? <laughs> All right, two Three hands, excellent. Uh, listen, you, do you, does anybody know what darts are? Like it's the thing that you throw into the into the wall, right? Okay, I get it. I know it's kind of like an '80s reference. Uh, people now throw axes, apparently. Um, darts were, I guess, too dangerous with their sharp tips, and so now we've made throwing sports safer by introducing something that cuts down trees. Um, so, so there, I, I'm really interested in this concept in this this idea of perfection. You see, darts requires perfection. It's not like baseball. Listen, I love the game of baseball, but, but here's the thing with baseball. You show up 
for baseball, you do a good job 30% of the time, and whoa, we got a, we got ourselves an MVP. Um, like that's kind of how baseball works. You, you hit the ball thir- one-third of the time, your you're MVP status right there. Uh, you show up for darts, it requires perfection. Now, I'm very intrigued by this concept. And there's, there's this Guinness World Record, which is uh, most bullseyes in 60 seconds. I pro- probably, if you're like me, most of us can think of how many bullseyes we've hit in our whole life. And, and the number is like, you know, maybe one or two. But there's this guy named Jerry Joseph. I think we have a, a picture of him. Yeah, this guy named Jerry Joseph. Uh, I think his nickname is Hillbilly. Jerry Hillbilly Joseph, if, um, if you want to just keep that logged away in your information bank. Uh, we got a, So he set the world record a few years back, 11 bullseyes in 60 seconds. That record got beaten by this guy. This is Lee Mack. Lee Mack. He, he beat the record. Uh, he is a comedian and an actor from England, and he set the world record, the Guinness World Record, uh, of hitting 12 bullseyes in 60 seconds. Now, now listen, this is tough stuff. Like, we're not talking like they give you a whole bucket of, of darts and, and you, you get to throw all of them at the board. No, you, you only get your, your five or I can't remember if it's five or six, but you get, you get your couple of darts and you have to run back and grab them out of the board and then go back to your spot and then throw some more. And so that, this guy had 12 bullseyes in 60 seconds, okay? Now, that record got beat by this guy, James Wade. He is the current record holder. He's sponsored by, like, Burger King and all these places. And uh, James Wade got 15 bullseyes in 60 seconds. Now, I've gotten, like, a few bullseyes. Uh, I was trying to actually find my we, – we had to take our board down to the house because our wall was getting covered in holes. And so we took our board down. I couldn't find it this morning. I was looking around for it, but it's somewhere in the house. I've gotten a few bullseyes. Never this idea of getting 15 in 60 seconds is something else. So as it pertains to faith, Colossians 1 is the absolute bullseye of what we believe. It's the center, okay? It's the perfect expression of perfection of what we believe. And the apostle Paul keeps throwing and he keeps hitting the bullseye, phrase after phrase, verse after verse. I love it. If you're, if you're, if you're wondering what Christianity is, Christianity is about, it's, it's this. It's what we're going to be talking about today. If you wandered in here this morning and you're like, why are these people so happy and excited? What is it that they believe? I'm about to tell you exactly what it is because that's what the Word of God says that we're going to have in front of us this morning as we open in Colossians. So if you're ready, say I'm ready. All right, let's go, let's go. Okay, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start this in verse 15. We're going to go all the way to verse 20. Uh, this section, if you've got your Bible open, you might notice that this, this section, uh, you know how it breaks it all up for you. It actually goes through verse 23, but there's no way we're going to make it to verse 23 today. So um, we're going to stop at 20. We're going to unpack a lot here. So I hope that you have your theological thinking caps on because you always need it whenever you're reading Paul. Uh, and so uh, I hope that you're ready for this. Here we go. Uh, he says this in verse 15. He is the image. Who, hold on, who is the he that Paul is talking about? Jesus, yeah. So sometimes the Sunday school answer is actually the right answer. Good job. All right. Uh, he is the image of the invisible God. This is a thick verse. There is a lot going on here. The, the, the word image there, the original Greek, you, you know, like, I don't want to insult your intelligence. You know that the Bible wasn't written in English, right? Like, I'm sure that you know that it was written in Greek and Hebrew with a pinch of Aramaic thrown in there. And, and, and in the Greek, the word for image there, it's a Greek word for icon. 
The image, uh, the, this, the, the word image, this is, is actually a Greek word icon. This concept is that someone would see a person and make a statue, uh, a, a sculpture, uh, a painting, an iconic representation of what that person was. And Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is the icon. He is the image of what? What does the next, what does the next verse say? The, the invisible God. So, so you have to know this. No one has ever seen God. No one can see God and live. The Old Testament tells us that. He dwells in unapproachable lights. But God has done us a solid. Okay? He said, I want you to know me. You can't see me because you would explode, but I want you to know who I am. And so he sent Jesus. But there's a bit of bad theology tied up in that because we tend to think that Jesus is a picture of God, and that's not what the Bible teaches. Here's a picture of my friend Jordan. There he is. He's our worship leader, and I think he's doing a pretty good job, right? This is a picture of him. Now, the real him is sitting over here. You can, you can come up. Actually, come, come over here with me. So the real him is going to be standing right here next to me. And, and here's what we tend to think the Bible's teaching here. All right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to help me with this illustration. Come a closer. All right, it's going to help me with this illustration. What we tend to think is that what the Bible's teaching is, okay, so, so there's God, all right, there's God, and, and then there's Jesus. Okay? So there's, there's God, and then there's Jesus. He's a picture of what God actually is like, but perhaps the, the fuller and more real version of who God actually is is over here. Jesus is just a picture, but here's the fuller version of who God is, and that's not what the Bible teaches at all. It doesn't teach that. And if you remember in the Old Testament, let me, let me get one more person. Zach, come up here for a second. If you remember in the Old Testament, okay, uh, Moses went up on Mount, Mount Sinai, and it says that in the cloud, can you be a cloud? All right, it says that, cover your face there, there. All right, it says that in the cloud. Come over here in front of Jordan. All right, it says that in the cloud, okay, in the cloud he stood face to face with God, but we know that no one has ever seen God. Okay, so God came down in a, in a pillar of smoke, a cloud, and he stood there, and Jesus stood face to fa- and Moses stood face to face with God, but never actually saw his face. And what we tend to think that scripture is teaching here is, 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 that, um, is that here is God, but we don't get to see him. All right, here is God, and we don't get to see him. He's shrouded, he's covered. We, we don't get, we, we, get to, we get glimpses, but we don't get to look at him. We don't get to see him, and here is Jesus. And, and like, it's, it's, it's close enough, right? It's close enough to who he is. It, it, it gets sort of the essence and the idea across, but that's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible actually teaches is, is that God is in the cloud, and we're, and, and we're not going to get to see that. No, no one can see God and live. God's, God's holiness would just destroy us in, in, in an absolute instance, but, instant, but God wanted us to know him. And so he said, I'm going to show you what's in here. I'm going to take this off, and I'm going to show you what's in the cloud. It's my son, Jesus. Like, that, that's what's in here. It's my son. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. You guys can get thank, thank you so much. It's the exact imprint of God's nature. So here's, here's the first point, point number one. Jesus Christ embodies the Father's nature to uncover his beauty. We've got, we've got a couple points, like I think like seven, 
reasons to choose Jesus today. I want you to, these are seven reasons to choose Jesus today. And that's number one. Jesus Christ embodies the Father's nature to uncover his beauty. But that not only tells us about Christ, it also tells us about ourselves. As Jesus is the image of God. He is what we were meant to be in terms of character. We were created in his image, Genesis tells us. Jesus is supreme in eternity, and we should give him first place in our lives as well. Then what's he saying in the next passage? All right, he's the image, or the next part of the passage. He's the image of the invisible God. What's next? Uh, as, as image emphasizes Christ's relationship to the Father, the next part of the verse, he is the firstborn of all creation, emphasizes his relationship to creation. All right. I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute, Pastor. I thought Jesus was God, and God has always been, and was therefore not created. Can you please explain how Jesus is then the firstborn of all creation? That's the one that people get stuck on. So, yes, I'm glad you asked. I want to help you out here. I want to help your theology this morning. I want to solidify your Christology today. It does not mean born first. The concept of firstborn in Scripture is the concept of a status symbolizing God's complete favor and blessing. All right, it doesn't mean firstborn. Jesus has always existed. Theologians say that Jesus is eternally begotten from God. Jesus was never born. Okay, well, I mean physically born on earth. I don't want you to get confused. That he, did, he was a baby. But that was a temporary stopover for his, for his eternal forever existence, okay? Uh, when, when Paul says that Jesus is firstborn, he's not saying that there was a time where he was not and then there was a time where he was. He always has been. In Exodus 4.22, Israel is called God's firstborn. And in, 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 uh, in Psalm 89, David is prophetically called God's firstborn. These passages give us a fuller picture of what God was talking about. He's saying Jesus Christ has the status symbolizing God's complete and total favor and blessing. All of God's favor poured out on this one person. All of God's blessing on this one person, eternally preexisting as his son in the exact imprint of his nature. Come on, somebody. This is some good theology today. It's gonna, it, it could give you a holy headache, and that's okay. Paul actually describes here's, here's what, Paul actually describes Christ's supremacy in creation in four ways, and you're going to see these as we read through verses 15 to 17. I'll try to point them out to you. In verse 15, as we just saw, Christ is the firstborn. In verse 16, he is creator. In the second part of 16, he is the goal. And finally, in verse 17, we're going to see that Christ is the sustainer. All right, so what does it say next? He is the firstborn of all creation. All right, for by him, verse 16, all things were created in heaven and on earth. So, so in the sky, on the ground, visible and invisible. That means things in the earthly, in the, in the physical earthly realm for, for realm for visible and things in the spiritual realm for invisible. These things were all created by him. Jesus is the agent of creation ex nihilo. That means from nothing. Then what does it say next? He also created thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All right, these are usually understood to be uh, these are these are usually understood to be classes of angelic powers. All right, in in, in classic Jewish literature, this is this is what this alludes to. Uh, he's he's the creator of angels, of spiritual beings that we don't even understand. So when Paul says that he created all things, that's all things that we know about and can see, and all things that we have no clue about. Why does he bring up angelic beings? 
Well, later in the chapter, uh, later in this letter, in chapter 2 actually, um, later in this letter, uh, Paul warns against angel worship. Okay, So that's a possibility. He's warning against angel worship. And so maybe, you know, maybe he's, he's possibly letting the church at Colossae know that Jesus created the angels so they should not receive the worship that is rightfully his. It could also very well be because of the Gnostic uh, thought process that was happening in the church that the church in Colossae was actually facing. I've mentioned that false teaching was an issue that Paul was trying to correct, and specifically uh, Greek Gnostic beliefs. They believed and, and were teaching that Jesus was a man that came from God, but, but that he was not actually God. And Paul combats that with, with not, only is he, not only is he God, he created everything you see and can't see, even the invisible spiritual world. He's, he's God, and he created all. It says all things were created through him and for him. And, and those last two words are the best part of this verse because, because we all know that Jesus created all things. We, 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 we get that. We understand that. But how wonderful that he didn't just create them, but he created them for himself. I love that, church. He's not only the creator of creation, he's also the end goal. All things were created for him. Some translations use the word toward, toward instead of for, uh, it, it, which in my mind makes the, makes the sense even more dramatic. All things were created by him and toward him. All, all things were, all, everything began with him and will end with him. All things sprang forth with his command and all things will return to him at his command. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He is central to all creation. So here it is, church. I want you to get this. I'm trying to help your theology this morning. Number two, Jesus Christ created the world to show, to show his centrality. He created the world to show his centrality. That's so good. I thought I was going to get an amen there. I'll amen myself. That's good. That's all right. Because Jesus created the world to show his, listen to me. It's, it's very clear. It's very clear the world was created through Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. So in that context, where does that put Jesus? Come on, somebody. Right smack in the center. Right in the bullseye. Jesus at the center, all created by him, created through him, created for him. And Jesus Christ is there at the center. So let me ask you something. I want to I teach you today, but I also want to give you something. Uh, I want I I this to be applicable and reflective. So, so we've established that he's at the center of the universe, but is he at the center of your life? Because when Jesus is at the center of your universe, you show that you understand that he is at the center of the universe. So, so where is Jesus right now? Where is Jesus in your life? Where is, is, is he kept in a box marked open only on Easter and Christmas? Is he put away only to be brought out on Sundays? Or is he the center of your life? The center of your world? Do you, do you run your decisions through him? Do you look for ways to glorify him daily? Do you talk with him often? Let's keep rolling because there's so much good stuff here. In verse 17, the next three is going to come a little bit quicker. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Talking about Christ here. Paul is popping off some of his best theological statements in this passage. If I had to describe this passage with, with emojis, it would be like fire, 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 100, 100, 100, because he is like throwing down, right? He's, this is like the best stuff he's got, and he's just rolling them off one after another. He says these two phrases. He is before all things. This concept of, of time is relative to us. 
Okay? Every person here, I would venture to guess, was born between 1955 and 2005. Now, there may be a few people a, a little younger and a little bit older, but in general, that was when the vast majority of people in this theater this morning were born. And between the years of 2050 and 2100, all of us will die. I hope that's not like new news to you. Otherwise, this message just got real dark and sad. But here's the thing. You're not going to live to be more than 100 probably. And when we die, we will have lived for about 5% of the time since Jesus was here on this earth. Based on your understanding of Genesis 1, we will have lived a little bit less than 1% of the total time that the earth has existed. Now, I'm not going to do the math on old earth creation. You can just do that on your own. But what Paul is saying here is something really cool. He's saying that outside of the concept of minutes, outside of the concept of, of, of hours, of days, outside of the concept of years and centuries and time itself, Jesus Christ stands. He is before all things. He is before time. What does it say in, in Psalm 90? Um, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is before all things. And then what does it say next? This, this is the best part. Look at your neighbor and tell them this is the best part. In him, all things hold together. Let me, let me, I want to give you the point and then we're going to unpack that a little bit. Number three, Jesus Christ holds the universe together to reveal his supremacy. He holds the universe together to reveal his supremacy. His status as supreme over all, and in him all things hold together. The perfect tense used in this verse tells us that he continues to hold all things together. The, 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 that, that apart from his continuous activity, all would disintegrate. I mentioned before that he is the sustainer. That's what we see in this verse. What exactly does that look like? Holding all things together. Now, here's the deal. I'm not much of a scientist myself. I did okay in high school science. Uh, I would not do well if I was placed in a high school science class now. Uh, I recognize that. But I will say that as I've, as, I, as I've studied this verse, I came across someone who does understand science. He's a, a Christian physicist by the name of, of Lambert Dolphin, and he wrote an article in 1997 about Colossians 117. I'm going to quote to you a little bit from it after I want to set it up for you first. Um, Okay, so, so we're all made of atoms, supposedly, right? You know this. And, 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 and atoms are made of what? Protons, neutrons, electrons. Okay, maybe you remember that from high school science, maybe, maybe not. Uh, here's the interesting thing, is that, is that it's obvious why protons, neutrons, and electrons stay together. Everybody understands this because opposites attract. Positives and negatives attract and stay together, and neutrons don't offer any energy, and so that's why it just holds the whole thing together. This is kind of like basic high school science day one. The interesting thing is that, that no one, not one scientist understands what holds the nucleus together because there's no understandable force there. So let me just read it. I can't say it better than a physicist can. So this is what Lambert Dolphin said uh, in 1997. The electric force explains how the electrons are bound to the nucleus of an atom. Uh, but what holds the nucleus together? The electric force can't account for this. And in fact, this electrical force actually works against holding the nucleus together. So why positively charged protons don't repel one another? Why doesn't the nucleus blow apart? So let me get like a little technical for, for just a second. 
the nucleus of every, of every atom is held together by what physicists call strong forces. That's their blanket statement. We don't know what it is, so we're going to call it strong forces. Physicists have no answer. The nucleus of an atom is basically a bunch of protons and neutrons crammed together. What is this strong force that holds the nucleus together? We can't account for the nucleus staying together with just electromagnetic force. So how can we account for this dilemma? Gravity? No. Gravity can't do it because it's too weak to overpower the electromagnetic force. Again, I'm no scientist, but here's what makes sense to me. This unfathomable energy was put into the universe by the powerful word of Jesus Christ. I think science and God can't coexist. In fact, God created science. This is what Colossians 1.17 is talking about on a scientific level when it says that Jesus Christ holds all things together. And, here, and here's the, like the truly terrifying thing is that there's a time when he's going to stop doing that. It says in 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. There is approaching a time in which Jesus Christ will say, uh, I, I, my time of holding the nuclei of all atoms together is done. And he will let go and everything will be disintegrated in fire. It's terrifying. It's true. And that's what's so wonderful about what it says in Colossians 1.17, that he holds the universe together. He sustains it says in Hebrews 1, he upholds the universe by the, by the word of his power. So the next two things come together. And he is the head of the body, the church. This phrase is described by Bible commentaries as a, um, a hinge verse. This is a hinge verse. This means that it's continuing this, this like discourse on Jesus that we've been going through. But it moves from focusing on Jesus over the world, over the universe, to Jesus over the church specifically. So, so here's the point, and I'm going to give you the next one as well. Number four, Jesus Christ leads the church to extend his preeminence. Go ahead and write that down. Jesus Christ leads the church to extend his preeminence. Then it says this, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There's that word again. I'm giving you these two together, and I'm going to unpack both verses for you. Here's number five. Jesus Christ conquered death to show his power. Conquered death to show his power. So let's look back. First, he's the head of the body, the church. Every church has a head. And it isn't the worship leader. It, it isn't the missional community leader. It isn't the elders, and it certainly isn't me. The head of this church is Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful that we believe that and know that and understand that. And that's what's being taught by Paul in this verse. Then he says he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the, the, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There's so much in that verse. He is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead to conquer death. He wasn't the first to be raised from the dead, but he was the most important. Because without his resurrection, there could be no resurrection of others. We know that and believe that. Well, I hope we do. I hope we know that and I hope we believe that. But do you know and believe that when Jesus rose from the dead, he was setting a precedent, establishing a means, and that you were next? It wasn't just, I'm, I'm conquering sin and death. It was, I'm leading the way. I am the firstborn from the dead. 
Christ chose to enter his own creation, take on a body that he created and sustained by his power, die, and then undergo resurrection, and so being the firstborn from the dead and the first in rank in salvation. Come on, somebody. This is, this, is, this is good stuff. What should this mean to us? What should this mean to us? Simply this, that in everything he might have preeminence. In everything he might have preeminence. That's such a great word, the word preeminence. It means the first place. <clears throat> it means that he would have the prize. That he would have the first place in everything. And, and you can even see the play on words that he's trying to do there. It's kind of hard in English. He is the firstborn from the dead so that in everything he would have first place. He's got to have first place in everything. He's got to have first place in our families, first place in our marriages, first place in our jobs, first place in our mission and our ministry, first place in matters of intellect, first place in time, first place in love, first place in conversation, first place in pleasures, first place in eating, in what we watch, in the music we listen to, <clears throat> first place in our worship. I love, I want to spend more time unpacking that, but there's, there's a little bit more to go and we're, we're kind of close to time. So let's, let's keep pushing on. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You should, you should commit this verse to memory because it's so rich. In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In that frail human frame was pleased to dwell all the fullness of God's joy, all the fullness of God's love, all the fullness of God's strength and all the fullness of God's power and God's forgiveness and God's knowledge and God's wisdom all jam-packed into one person. All of the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus. I think Paul's use of the word fullness was an intentional slap at the Gnostics who, who used the same word, it's, 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 it's pleroma. To describe, they, they use this word to describe the totality of the thousands of the lesser gods they believed in. And Paul's saying, Gnostics, please. Jesus isn't one of the lesser gods of the fullness. Jesus is the fullness. Number six, Jesus Christ personifies God's fullness to show his glory. He personifies God's fullness to show his glory. This is a foundational truth. This means we only need to look to Jesus for the full revelation of God's character. We only have to look at Jesus. If, if we could only perceive God in like closely reasoned theological language, then, then honestly only the most brilliant people could even hope to understand him. But the fullness was in Christ and all we have to do is look at him. As we see him in the Gospels, as we hear him preach, we can know what God is like. Verse 20, this is our last verse for this morning. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here's the last point. Jesus Christ died for all, including me, to bring peace. And the blood that was stained to that wooden torture device had a purpose. To bring you peace. To bring you peace. 
should you accept it? You see the word reconciled there in verse 20. We're actually going to talk a lot more about that word next week when we get to verse 21. But, but I want to land here this morning. Everything in the universe will be reconciled back to God, except that which rejects him. In, in every reference to reconciliation between God and man in the New Testament, every single time when you look at the book of, uh, of Ephesians, if you look at Romans, if you look at 2 Corinthians, it's God who takes the initiative. We see that reconciliation to God is, is an explicitly one-sided process. He does virtually everything. All we have to do is respond. He was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Salvation is God's joyous work. The joy set before him. So let me, let me kind of sum it up. Let me put a bow on it for you. Jesus is supreme in all creation. He is firstborn and he has the highest place. He is creator of everything, every cosmic speck, every spirit, seen and unseen. He is the goal. And all creation is moving toward him and for him. He is the sustainer. He is holding the very breath that I am using to speak to you right now. And he wants a relationship with you. How incredible is that? How amazing and mind-blowing is that? Not only that, he wants to be the center of your life. He wants to reconcile you to the Father. He wants to bring you peace. And you know what? He's done all the work. He's done, he's done everything. And if he's calling you today, all you need to do is respond. So can I pray over us this morning? God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for this brief picture that we, we, can, we can glean from scripture about Jesus Christ. About who he is and about who we are in him. And God, I pray right now if there's anyone in this theater who doesn't know you. Who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. Who Jesus is not at the center of their lives. Holy Spirit, move in this place. Speak into the lives and the hearts of each and every person. And if you're calling them today, if you're calling them today, God, I pray that you would give them boldness and courage and strength to take the next step, to step toward you. You're not moving. You're right there. You're waiting. You've done it all. You've set it all in motion. It's now up to us to respond. And so, God, I pray right now for any heart that is, that is unsure. For anybody in this place right now that's saying, I, I just don't know, I don't, I don't know, I'm not sure, or, or maybe I do know and I don't have her. I pray, for the, I pray for those people right now, God. God, I pray for the rest of us.
I pray that we would just meditate on the preeminence of Jesus Christ. That we would recognize how incredible, how amazing that all things were created for him, by him, through him. That we would put our trust in him, our hope in him, our joy comes from him. Thank you, God, for your son, Jesus. Thank you for pouring your fullness out on him. So, God, as we, uh, as we, as we worship in just a few moments, as we sing about the king of kings, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone that needs to respond, that they would respond. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you're in here and you do need to respond, we're going to have a time of offering, I think, in just a moment. But if you need to respond, there's a care room right outside these doors, and they would love to talk with you. They would love to pray with you. You just walk right out the doors, take a left. It's, it's right there. You can't miss it. If you want to wait until the song, please do. But please don't leave here today not knowing where you stand with Jesus Christ.